Over the last four plus months, I've gotten to know Travis Christofferson, the author of the book, Tripping Over the Truth. Over the last several years, he has become probably the leading documentarian of the evolution of cancer therapies. His book does not state, but rather questions whether genetic therapies are in fact the start of cancer or are more downstream. Agree with him or not, if you look at the field of epigenetics and the concept of nature versus nurture across all aspects of our bodies, be it physiological or psychological, it is imperative that we as a society look at all theories and then test them. For those of you that follow me, you will know that my opinion, at least my current opinion, is that only using the genetic approach to treating cancer is, at best, inefficient. If it were me, I would want every edge I can get. And considering my long-dated gut issues, which put me in a higher cancer risk pool, I am focused on using preventive methods on myself. So even selfishly speaking, I want to know. But what gets lost by some people who complain about the champions of metabolic theories and therapies is that the vast majority of its proponents believe in using metabolic therapies as adjunctive therapies to standard of care, of care, at least until there is sufficient evidence that genetics are irrelevant, which, by the way, none of them think. Travis may not have his MD or PhD, but he has an encyclopedic mind and a knack for synthesizing every bit of information on every drug, treatment, clinical trial, etc., so that he can raise the important questions. In my many years of researching all sorts of disease states and treatments, he may be the best value-adding documentarian I've come across. As important, doctors from around the world who are using metabolic therapies are having outstanding results, and all of them are reporting back to Travis. Thus, for those patients or practitioners or loved ones out there who need to find additional help in their journey through the cancer world, Travis is the man to follow. His humility, coupled with hard data and a desire for finding the truth, should be applauded. I hope that over time, the medical establishment in general will adopt some of that earnestness. When they lose their curiosity and lose sight of their limits, brilliant people cease to be brilliant. At least that is my humble opinion. And with that, here is Travis Christofferson. I am fortunate to be here today with Travis Christofferson, who, amongst other things, is the author of a book called Tripping Over the Truth, uh, which has become uh, famous, or should I say infamous, in the cancer treatment world uh, as it focuses on the history and uh, evolution of looking at cancer as a metabolic disease. Uh, he has his hands in a lot of things, including sponsoring a recent conference on cancer as a metabolic disease, and is involved in a new uh, clinic uh, that started in the UK and is, is the, the man bringing it into the US uh, that is in oncology care. And with that, Travis, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, David. So what I'd love to do is is start with you just giving your background and and, and what what we're going to do today that's a little different uh, because you wrote the book uh, and it's not you know and and it it is involved in but the book itself isn't specific to patient care. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your background and the book 
And then we'll get into uh, some of the treatment things that you're doing and, and the way you see uh, cancer being uh, uh, or patients being treated now and in the future. So if you could just start with your background, it'd be great. Yeah, my, my background may be woeful, woefully underwhelming, but it's, it's nonlinear to say the least. So I, I was on the med school track as an undergrad and um, actually was accepted to the state school and drugged my feet about two weeks before I was supposed to move there because I knew, you know, I, I had eight more years of school and I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an MD or not. So I, I ended up jumping into a master's degree um, here in Rapid City at School Mines in uh, bioremediation. And so I, I, you know, and then life sort of intervened. I met a girl from Texas in, in class and we got married and, and had two kids and I left grad school, three classes left and jumped into a business. And I remember telling my wife, don't let me do this more than five years because I absolutely love science and I wanted that to be my, you know, my career. And so 17 years later, I jumped back into to finish my master's degree and I only had three credits left. So they kind of gave me some latitude and allowed me to do this class on cancer theory. And I'd stayed current, uh, you know, with most of, with, um, with, molecular biology. So I knew, you know, was current with cancer research. And I dove into this book called Cancer is a Metabolic Disease by this guy named Tom Seyfried. I just happened to, to click it on, on Kindle. It was more chance than anything and was just dumbstruck by it. I, here's this guy out in Boston College that was claiming cancer was not a genetic disease, right? That I had learned all throughout my undergrad. Everybody had learned it was through and through a genetic disease. A somatic mutation theory of cancer contends that cancer is caused and driven by this sort of sequential series of key mutations to oncogenes or cancer-causing genes. And he had this beautiful textbook that had hundreds, hundred years of evidence that it kind of you know was out there, but never really put into this comprehensive, overarching look, this comprehensive theory of cancer. And so it was, you know. It's it was so amazing to me from a scientific perspective that I'd always dabbled in writing, and he had written the textbook. But within there was this beautiful story, almost a novel like story, because the main character, his name was Otto Warburg, um, who in 1924 claimed that cancer was a metabolic disease, and he was this brilliant German scientist. He was a Nobel Prize winner, was nominated. On, on multiple occasions, you know, highly regard, regarded as probably the premier biochemist of the 20th century. And he had claimed cancer was caused by defective metabolism. But then in the 50s, of course, Watson and Crick discovered DNA. It was known that there were mutations in cancer cells. And all of a sudden, the, the genetic, you know, the genetic theory became entrenched and dogmatic. And Otto Warburg, when he died in 1970, he, that was looked at like the scar in his career that he had this overly simplistic view of cancer and everyone kind of, kind of laughed about it almost. Um, so that was a story. It was a, sort of the scientific redemption story of this brilliant scientist that his theory got swept aside and then it made this incredible, remarkable comeback. And so I kind of, you know, followed the history of all this research and um, summarized it in a book that was not, not by any means a textbook. That was more just a, a history and an over, you know, kind of a layperson written book of the theories. So that's, you know, it is nutshell. That's the background. And, and talk, talk a little bit more about the, 
um, the history in cancer and how it all came together. You know, in, in terms of the, 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 you know, what I would call the, um, the destruction of the, um, of, of, of the metabolic yeah, theory. The history. So he, what Otto Warburg noticed in 19, in the early twenties, when he looked at, he was a biochemist. And so he looked at energy metabolism. He was looking actually at sea urchin eggs. And he noticed that when sea urchin eggs divide, right, they undergo this to, to, the process of embryogenesis, there's this furious energy consumption and it fuels this through what's called oxidative metabolism, which is the use of oxygen to create energy. So he kind of likened this furious growth to cancer and thought when he turned to cancer cells, he thought that's what he would see, this like this this burst of oxidative respiration that was fueling this uncontrolled growth. And that's all that was known at the time that what cancer was, was pathological cell growth. So when he looked at the cancer cell, he didn't see that. What he saw was this generation of lactic acid, right? And so there's another energy producing pathway called glycolysis or fermentation that bypasses the oxidative respiration. So it does not use oxygen and it creates this this toxic end product called lactic acid. And cancer cells had switched their metabolism to this different form of energy creation. And now the question was why, and he didn't know why. He supposed later on in his career in the 19, in 1955, he did an experiment where he exposed, he took normal cells and just put them in a hypoxic environment, just took away oxygen. And it was enough to cause what he called injury to the cell's respiratory mechanism. So it injured these organelles we call mitochondria. He called Gran at the time. But this injury was sufficient to cause these cells to revert to this ancient form of energy creation and turn them into this cancerous phenotype. So he contended that cancer was caused by um, injured, injury to the respirative apparatus, right? And then, as we, and then as we, so that that was one of the contending theories at the time. There was really three theories: Otto Warburg's theory, a guy named Peyton Rouse, an American scientist. He had a viral theory of cancer. We noticed that there was viruses that cause cancer in chickens and other animals, and so that was kind of this pesky theory that would never go away. But they'd never found a virus in man yet in humans. And then the other theory was a chromosomal theory. They'd notice that chromosomes were broken, defective, duplicated in cancer cells. And they instantly, of course, tied this to you know a cause. But nobody knew really what those three theories kind of jousted back and forth until a famous series of experiments in 1976 where they discovered that the mutations in cancer cells were to key, to key cell cycle genes. So in other words, the genes that control cell division, that's where we saw these mutations. And then this really snapped down the, the what they call the somatic mutation theory of cancer. So the race was off at this point. This was 1976. And Varmus and Bishop were the scientists that discovered this. They won a Nobel Prize. Everybody thought we knew what cancer was at this point. And this ushered in this era of what we call targeted medicine, right? We were going to develop these these drugs that targeted these mutations. And it was widely believed. I mean, you can go through the, the history, you see the quotes. Um, Nixon had declared war on cancer already. And it was widely believed we'd have this thing figured out within five, you know, five to 10 years at the latest. And so those, those cures never came. We, we developed targeted drugs. They were very marginal efficacy and, and everybody became frustrated. And this led to what, what's called the Cancer Genome Atlas Project, which is this massive governmental eff- effort to sequence the genomes of cancer cells. 
And if cancer is truly a genetic disease, this would be the right the, the Manhattan Project cancer. This would be the end. We would find all of the mutations that were causative for every type of cancer, and then we could work off these sort of mutational fingerprints to come up with with new cures, the exact cures. And so this began in 2006. And right away, within the first couple of years, the data was was way different than most expected. What the data, you know, what we thought we would see, the sort of mutational fingerprint that defined each type of cancer and mechanistically defined it. We'd say, okay, gene A, B, C, D is mutated. This causes this type of cancer. We didn't see that at all. We saw this, what we call this huge degree of intertumoral heterogeneity. So between diff- from each patient's tumor, there was a d- wildly different mutations. So it was very, very hard to draw a line between cause and effect. And this held true for every type of cancer they sequenced. They went, you know, they sequenced most types of cancer, all the solid tumors, breast, lung, brain, prostate, and so forth. And some of these, you know, some of these tumors, you'd find a single driving mutation. Some, there was zero. So based on this data, it was impossible to reconcile a true, a complete genetic cause to any type of cancer. And you can see this in the journal articles, the top guys in the field, like Bert Vogelstein at, at uh, Johns Hopkins, for example, um, he was, he's, you know, regarded as one of the best um, cancer biologists in the world. And he's wrote this paper that he he says there's this dark matter in cancer. There's some other cause that we have yet to to figure out. And this is where sort of the guys like Tom Seyfried stepped into the fray and said, oh, well, you, we've been missing this all along. There is these other causes and they're metabolic. And so that's kind of it, when I, you know, when I wrote my book, it was kind of in the wake of this confusion. The genetic theory was under attack. These scientists are coming up with these new theories um, to try to explain this confusing data. And so that's where we are now. That that's basically a hundred years of cancer research and leaves us where we are now. And and you know, dogmatic theories like this don't topple overnight. You just look at the history of of science in general, and this is this is typical. Even though there's very strong evidence to show that it's not entirely genetic disease, nobody's going to go out and say that. The textbooks have been written. You know, it's just this very slow kind of moving process. So, so what in, in your research, because, you know, I, I know a lot of people like to say, oh, well, you don't have a PhD or you don't, you know, people have this or they don't have that. And to me, it's totally irrelevant. Um, people either have a knack and a passion for something. So, um, you know, I know at the beginning you kind of poo-pooed not have, you know, only having a master's and not being a doctor. But to me, it, it's, you know, you, you, uh, to me, you wax poetic. So, um, in your opinion, um, you know, it's a metabolic disease, which, or, or the roots of it are. Um, but what, what do you think, you know, are the likely causes that, you know, viruses, toxins, uh, in et cetera, that, that are, that, you know, and, and then we can get into a little bit about um, ways to uh, either starve it, uh, to help the other cells to overpower, et cetera. But, what do you think are the, um, you know, the underlying causes that you, that you, you see know, most? All of the prevalent? above. You mentioned all those things that damage. They damage DNA, but they also damage mitochondria. So it's very hard to parse out. You could see these theories overlap. It was very hard. You could see how one kind of covered the other up, and it was easy to become misled. So the question is, which is damaged first, mitochondria or nuclear DNA? And of course, Tom Safery contends that 
mitochondria are damaged first, and this energy crisis leads to to down uh, the downstream effect, which are the mutations to nuclear DNA. They have happen secondary to the true cause, and then the genetic guys, of course, claim the other thing that that nuclear DNA is damaged first by carcinogens, and then you get this sort of shifting of metabolism from this damage. Um, but but regardless, the same things are causing cancer. We, we've always known that, which are carcinogens. The list now, I think, is almost 300 on the NCI website. We know them pretty well. Um, they're everywhere. And uh, viruses and, you know, HPV is coming kind of, we're hearing more and more about, about that cause of cancer. Um, sunlight, anything that damages our body is a potential cause of cancer. And then the next, do you think? Oh, I, actually, I want to stop. Do, do you think sunlight causes damage, or do you think sunblock, which is stopping respiration, you know, right? Is you know, Dave, I don't know. Honest, I don't know. Other much. things, I, I haven't researched that enough. I just know that you know, new UV light by itself, if it's intense and long long term, um, will will damage cellular structures. So, but. Of course, there's benefits to that. You know, we need sunlight, we need vitamin D, but the, the radiation in general, let's just say, um, you know, ionizing radiation is definitely a carcinogen. And then the question comes, well, you know, we're designed to take damage and people, we ever, we, everybody knows somebody that's 95 and smoked their whole lives and never developed cancer. So what is it about our bodies that can prevent this? And we're now we're learning, and this is kind of where they overlap. We're learning how important maintaining low inflammation, maintaining metabolic health is to preventing cancer. And there's kind of, there's a, I just, there's a great video of this experiment that was done back in the fifties where they injected rats with tumor cells and then they injected the, the uh, hepatic vein, right? So these tumor cells went into the liver and then they cut these open rats open five months later, and their livers were, of course, riddled with cancer. Were, were clean. There was no cancer. There was no cancer in the liver at all. So somehow they they repressed this this cancer. Then they did the next experiment where they did the same thing. They injected these rats with into the hepatic vein with cancer cells, but this time they did an incision in their stomach area. So nowhere near the liver. It was it was separate. But they did a few incisions. They let they sutured it up, let it heal. Did another incision let it heal. And then five months later, they again opened up the livers and looked at it. This time their livers were riddled with cancer. So something about this wounding process, you know, even though it was unrelated, it was just, it was in the body causes this cancer to take hold and grow. And so we now know, you know, that that's inflammation is intimately tied to, in the wound healing process is intimately tied to metastatic cancer growth. And so when you look at something like breast cancer, most, most patients will present with primary tumors. That's what clinicians see the majority of the time. And so you'll, do, you'll operate, you'll do a mastectomy or, or lumpectomy. And then you, you look at recurrences. And when you look at the recurrence rate, it spikes at the one-year point and then falls precipitously after that, right? You'd expect it to kind of be smooth, but it's not. You see this huge spike and then it goes down. And so the question is, why does it spike like that? And the reason is, is when you do that, you go in and do surgery, you're creating a wound. So when you do that, platelets come to, to heal the wound, to stop the bleeding. They degranulate, they release all these cytokines, they release all these um, growth factors that promote inflammation, 
immune cells come in and and th- this fuels cancer this process of inflammation fuels cancer so this grad student was kind of looking at all this literature and he said well what if what if you did something as simple as you know what if the patients were injected with an anti-inflammatory just a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug in the perioperative phase or so right before surgery to kind of quell this wound healing and inflammation process and he looked back through the data and he found out when you did this cuz they did it for other reasons some of the patients just happened to be injected with a with an IV NSAID, right? And it resulted in a 75% reduction in recurrence. So just, it was a $10 shot. This simple intervention of, 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 you know, suppressing the inflammatory response results in this huge reduction in, um, in recurrence. And so this, this kind of experiments, they show us that we, we could do so much better than we're doing. We don't even do things like that, which which are very very low risk and have this potentially huge impact on recurrence. And these things, you know, all these kind of interventions like that are sitting in front of us that that kind of focus on the whole body, this kind of holistic view of metabolism and inflammation and so forth. That's kind of a long winded answer, but I hope I hope that was good. That was helpful. Um, which speaking of. Uh, less invasive and kinder procedures um, made me think of of uh, Chris Smith, who presented at the conference a few weeks ago. Could you actually maybe just take a few minutes before we dig into um, into care oncology? And, and I'd love to briefly discuss uh, Dr. Slocum, and because I know you've you're, you're close to him, and he's doing some amazing work over in Turkey. But just maybe just give a brief summary of, of the key highlights from it was a three day conference, uh, which I, you know, I'm happy for you to give more details. But it was a three day conference focused on cancer as a yeah. metabolic disease with some great yeah, so, speakers. So, so if you just give a little background, I, you know, the and, two you mentioned, you mentioned Chris Smith and you mentioned uh, um, Slocum, Dr. Slocum. And what strikes you about there, there's the sort of that example I gave you before, you know, that's their approach is what are these simple interventions that we could do that might have these dramatic impacts and outcomes? And in general, where this leads you is to this, this idea of combinations. You know, it's never going to be one thing. We've been stuck in this kind of ideology in pharmacy where we have, we're always looking for this targeted silver bullet and we'll never get there. And the most profound effects we see in biology from a manipulation standpoint, a medicine standpoint, is always in combinations. And we, we've seen this over and over. We've, we learned this lesson with chemotherapy back in the, in the 60s, that combining agents is so much, you know, exponentially more efficacious than single agents. And so, we're, you know, it seems like we have to relearn this lesson over and over again. But what they're, what they're doing is simply try to, they prepare the body in a way, they use, they use something called the ketogenic diet. And it's a very, very simple intervention. We we don't we don't have large scale clinical trials on this, but we theoretically, if there's any predictive power, you know, this intervention is going to work. And there's lots of anecdotal evidence that it does work. And what it does is you shift your internal metabolism from a carbohydrate burning metabolism that cancer cells love to a fat ketone burning metabolism that cancer cells have trouble dealing with because. They have less mitochondria and their mitochondria are damaged. So they can't burn these, these oxi- the molecules that have to be dirt burned through oxidative phosphorylation. Um, so that's kind of the starting point. When you do that, you prep, you prep the patient's body in the way that cancer cells are rendered much more vulnerable to traditional therapies. 
And ironically, it's it's a kind of this golden therapy because then normal cells are made more resistant to chemotherapy and more resistant to radiation. And there's very good biochemical reasons for this. And this has been shown in small clinical trials too. When somebody's in ketosis and they go through chemotherapy, they have way more, way fewer objective, measurable side effects, like the number of times they vomit and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the starting point of their therapies. And then they'll stack on additional therapies on top of that. And I think Chris Smith was using something called Optune, which is this helmet that that releases this electrical free frequency that disrupts the mitotic cycle. So disrupts cell division. Um, and Slocum is using, you know, he really, what, what they, their, their clinic in Istanbul, kind of like I did, they, they read Tom Safry's book. I think the head um, oncologist at their, their, the name of their place is called chemothermia. He's John Hopkins educated, then went back there and started this highly respected clinic in, in Turkey. And then he found, Safried's work and really kind of retooled his clinic based on that, on the metabolic theory of cancer. So what they do is this kind of stacking protocol. They do a ketogenic diet. They'll have the, the patients fast before they're, they're given chemotherapy. They have to give chemotherapy, right? And they, they, but they're given a dose range and they use the lowest dose that they're allowed to use. So they do low dose chemo. Um, they do this thing called insulin potentiation, which drops the patient's blood sugar you know, into the fifties or even lower right before they get the chemotherapy. So you're, you're trying to keep these, you know, these cancer cells starved at that point. Um, then they do hyperbaric oxygen, which is another kind of gentler way to, to provide stress to cancer cells. Um, they do glycolytic inhibitors, these molecules called 2-deoxyglucose that prevent sugar from entering the cancer cell. And so they stack all these therapies and they're one of the, they've measured results. And they published, they published on lung cancer and, and on pancreatic cancer. And the results are outstanding. They're seeing, um, I think the lung cancer paper, they're seeing 400% increase in median life expectancy. And I think you saw the, uh, the scans, David. They're just remarkable. You, they showed before and after, one after the other scans. It were just complete remissions from, you know, from massive tumor loads. So this is, and this is what's interesting is this is really the first attempt at this. And this can only get better. I mean, this is all going to be a matter of timing, dosing, scheduling, and finding that right mix and combination where we can really have a, a massive impact. But that was a general theme, um, especially that I got out of the, the the conference was this kind of this resurgence of people looking at combination therapies like that. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I was, I also, Chris Smith, who I am going to have on this podcast, um, you, you know, just less invasive using, you know, lasers, uh, you know, focus, his, his focus is on glioblastoma, but also, you know, again, non-invasive, um, able to use yeah. directed lasers and, and, and not, you know, break open the entire skull, uh, the results are in his, his data. You know, I and and back to Doctor yeah, Slocum. Yeah, um, yep. I believe it was was it Doctor Mercola that did the video. Yeah, and that's where I I have that link on Tom Seafried's uh, interview, and and uh, and I will have it um, uh, linked again uh, at the end of our transcript. Um, and and the, the, they're they're just staggering. Yeah, yeah. Their study is, I think is more much everyone that goes there is stage, is stage four, four patients. correct? Then the comparative ones they used the you know they compared to the 
standard of care, which was prescribed with three and four level patients. So yeah, they're, they're, you know, makes their data even more non-biased. So I'd love to talk about your current endeavor with bringing um, the clinic care oncology into the U S yeah, care, onco- care oncology, how so that came about and, and what I, I you're did doing a talk in, in London and that's where I met some of the doctors from care oncology and I'd heard about them before um, at a conference in Tampa and I knew what they were doing. They, they, again, they also were from the starting point of, of therapeutic starting point, they looked at metabolism and then they asked a simple question of what, what drugs are in front of us right now that can target the dysfunctional metabolism of a cancer cell. And it really is an underutilized research from their starting point. When you look at what we have, our our pharmacopoeia, we have about 2000 novel entities that are FDA approved drugs. And many of these are small molecules that, that affect, they're called pleiotropic. They affect more than one pathway. They're probably able to modulate more than one disease. But what happens is they get, they'll go through, they'll be ushered through clinical trials, which cost about a billion dollars for a single indication. And then they're prescribed for that for years. And then they go off patent and they become generics. And then, and then even if you discre- discover that they're good for a new indication, a different disease, there's absolutely nobody that will usher them through that, those clinical trials again to get approval for that new disease because they'll never win back their investment. They're a generic drug. So they're called financial orphans. They're just stranded. And, and everybody agrees that we need to, to utilize these. They're just sitting there. And that was the impetus behind care oncology was to take these drugs that we know have this robust data. And you can look through the literature on the drugs in their protocol. And there is so much data, both at the population level and at the cellular level, that shows how efficacious these are. And then they, just, you know, then they also knew about the power combinations. So they, they, they looked at the synergy between certain medications and came up with a cocktail of four, four drugs that they thought would, would, you know, be the best to treat cancer. And um, they began treating patients about four years ago. And at the same time, they, they were approved for a clinical trial. So they've been capturing data and looking at it over for four years. I think they've treated about 1300 patients and they finally have gotten enough data for to publish on glioblastoma, which is pending. They should be publishing very soon, but the data looks outstanding right now. So, you know, the, this, this is another one of those things that, that has been right in front of us for a long time, but nobody has really used. And these drugs, a lot of these drugs, like for example, one of them is metformin, which is prescribed for type 2 diabetes. It's been around forever, prescribed for decades. And patient, clinicians noticed in these retrospective studies, because so, I mean, I think it's the number one descri- prescribed drug in the world now, or number two. So there's these massive blocks of data where type 2 diabetics are on these drugs for a long period of time. And clinicians began noticing that... Um, they had far less cancer. They had far less cardiovascular events. They tended to live longer. So even though they had type two diabetes, being on metformin um, conferred all these, you know, all these preventative effects. So then they sort of look back to the cellular level and and try to answer the question: Why? Why is this doing this? And metformin, from the metabolic standpoint, is pretty easy. Even though we still don't have a complete picture of all the ways metformin works 
we kind of have a rudimentary understanding from the metabolic level. When you take metformin, it concentrates in the liver, and then it inhibits what's called complex one of the electron transport chain. So it sort of just slows down metabolism. And when you do this, you sort of trip all these caloric restriction mechanisms that promote longevity. And the liver cells respond to this by producing less sugar, blood sugar. So your blood sugar drops, and that's why it's an effective type 2 diabetic drug. But when you do that, you also require less insulin. So your insulin levels go down. Insulin is associated with aging, of course, and also with cancer. Cancer have cancer cells have about 16 times the number of insulin receptors in normal cells. So they are hyper-responsive to insulin. So now we're kind of getting this picture of how these, you know, these drugs work on a metabolic level. But yeah, that that was that was the impetus behind care was to kind of de-strand these these financial orphans and have the courage to start treating patients right away. One of the benefits of using these repurposed drugs is we have decades of of safety data. We know the interactions, we know the side effects, we know the dosage, the pharmacokinetics, all these things. So there's this massive head start to using these. And when you compare it to, you know, new drugs that come through the FDA pipeline for cancer, it's so expensive to do this. It's, a, a you know, north of a billion dollars that oftentimes they won't even take these drugs out to measure overall survival. They'll use surrogate markers. They'll use like progression-free survival. So they'll get FDA approval and we, we won't even know if they're actually, you know, to what degree they're affecting overall survival. So some of these drugs have gotten approved and then in the end, once they've been on the market for a long period of time, you realize they don't affect overall survival at all. Or if they do, it's just, you know, marginally and they can cost, you know, $100,000, $120,000. Um, and also you don't have a long picture of side effects. Uh, for example, there's two, I think the papers came out very recently on the new immunotherapies. I mean, these are new procedures and we don't have a long tenure with them. So we're going to uncover new toxicology as we go on. And they're starting to contend with patients that are becoming type type one diabetics from these new checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapies. Um, so that's you know we contend with that with these new drugs. We just don't have a long history. We don't know what what ten years down the road we're going to uncover in side effects um, and even how efficacious they are in most cases. With these repurposed drugs, we do know we do know the safety profile. And so there's no reason to not start treating patients off-label with these, and that that's what, how care got started. And they're they're and now they've um, we've expanded to the U.S. and we're starting to treat patients here too. So I know you know as, as statins are are one of the components. I noticed in an article last week that there was a study on MRSA and other nasty infections that by adding a statin, uh, was having a profound effect on the efficacy of the antibiotics, um, which is incremental to this conversation, but from a, uh, you know, from the, whatever mechanism it's working on, uh, either, yeah, you, know, you know, certain bacteria statins, that do feed on most sugar. Most people don't or, realize how, uh, you know, th I, they're I really was, remarkable drugs. They're so pleiotropic um, and, you know, we, we kind of, get this kind of myopic vision. Okay. Well, they're, they're HMG CoA reductase inhibitors. They lower the bad form of cholesterol, LDL, but they do so many more things than that. When you really look at cellular processes, they're, they're tripping, you know, multiple inflammation, uh, epigenetic pathways, you know, nuclear fa factor kappa beta, which is, 
intimately connected to inflammation is down downregulated from statins. COX two is downregulated. So all these things we we notice clinicians notice that in addition, all the effects you see from statin, the beneficial effects, could not just be related to lowering LDL. And so when you look closer, you see all these anti-inflammatory properties and all these things. So they're doing, you know, an incredible amount of things. We're just lucky that lucky that they are. And and what about yeah, metformin, so a stat, atorvastatin, yeah, which is a lipophilic statin, a statin, which is important. And then um, you have two others. Correct? And then babendazole, which is actually a very old antifungal drug. It was given to kids for pinworms, and it's sold over the counter in most of the countries in Europe. Um, and Gregory Riggins, he presented data on a phase one trial on babendazole alone at our conference for glioblastoma, and by itself. Um, they're using dosages that are, you know, far and above the, what we use, but they were able to get a, a double in the phase one trial. They saw a doubling of overall uh, um, over a median lifespan when it's added to standard of care. So this is a very powerful drug. It acts on the um, tubulin formations and it, that's how, how it's an antifungal, but it does the same thing in cancer cells. Cancer cells have to create the sort of cytoskeleton to divide and that's, it inhibits the formation of that cytoskeleton. And then the other one we, that's part of the cocktails is just a simple antibiotic doxycycline. It's been around forever. Um, usually gets prescribed to kids for, uh, for acne for long periods of time, very safe. And, and they noticed, you know, clinicians notice that sort of these long-term remissions in patients that had taken it. And then at the cellular level, there's a beautiful paper in, na- in nature that shows that it inhibits the formation of cancer stem cells. So um, it just is a side effect, an off-target effect of its of its antibiotic. It it, it sort of uh, inhibits the, the mitochondrial formation. Cancer stem cells are dependent on more dependent on mitochondrial biogenesis. It inhibits that. And doxycycline is a little more interesting because you know people always get uh, get up in arms about the gut biome, but it's 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 absorbed higher up in the GI tract, so it, it disturbs the, the gut biome much less than traditional antibiotics. Hmm. I actually didn't know that part. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to speak out of turn um, on the data. I did see some of the data on, on using this uh, uh, for glioblastoma. And I, I, you know, when, when it comes out, I will be sure to publish it on the website um, and, and tweet it out um, because the data that I saw was nothing short of staggering. Um so soon enough. Um, so you opened a clinic here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, can you we just talked about how you're in my hometown, how you're, small. Uh, you know, you, you opened in your hometown, Rapid Sea, South how you're, Dakota. You're going to grow it, and you know, the idea was just kind of get the logistics down here, and then expand to bigger markets and bigger locations. Um, and this is, you know, we want the idea of this therapy is to never replace standard of care. It's purely adjunctive. We, it goes alongside a standard of care. It's like the ketogenic diet in the sense that it it weakens cancer cells that are so dependent on these energy um, to grow, and so um, that's what we're seeing. You know, that's obviously the, the largest effect is when it's used as an adjunctive therapy. But we want it to bring it's it. We want this option 
for cancer patients, you know, everywhere. And we're trying to make it as usually friendly as possible. And unfortunately, the way the laws are written, you can't prescribe across state lines. So can't, they have to come see us here for us to prescribe. But the telemedicine laws are coming where we'll be able to, uh, you know, do, do when it's indicated, we can do Skype, con- we can do consults via telemedicine and then do pre- prescribe across straight lines. So it'll become much more user-friendly once those laws get in effect. Oh, yeah. And oh, no, to be course. clear, it's you, you've opened a clinic with yeah. with licensed doctors, MDs, uh, doing the prescribing, not you. <laughs> just, just being clear. Um, so, so what what are you seeing? And I know you've been traveling a little. And what what are you seeing in 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 receptivity? And and um, and, and what do you see in this country where the, the patterns you're seeing of, of of where it's going? I know this stuff hasn't been embraced at a lot of medical institutions, but to my knowledge, probably a leader of metabolic research has historically been at Hopkins, if I'm correct. Um, and and a few other schools. I know Duke's done some research yeah. and. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and also, yeah, they start, yeah, they were the pioneers using ketogenic, ketogenic diets in the diet 50s, especially they, and, with children. And they've, that was where Pete Peterson, that he's a, the famous biochemist that really kind of took the baton from Warburg and mapped out a lot of the, the research that Tom Safford used to come up with his theory. Um, but there's a lot of this repurposing research. MD Anderson is doing a lot of it, especially with metformin. Um, there's some huge nonprofits that are really, really pushing repurposing research, but they're doing it a different way. They're they're doing it. They're trying to do the trials, the big trials, to because they know these drugs will never be you know taken up by pharmaceutical companies. So they try to do the big trials that give clinicians, give doctors the comfort level to prescribe these things off label. Now, whether that'll ever happen or not in a big way, I don't know. What what my my impression is that oncologists, there's so much information. They're, they're, they have so many cancer types to deal with, right? With, that are just different anatomies, different standards of care. So they they it's an overwhelming amount of information they have to take in to get good, to be good at their jobs. Then you put to this next layer, okay, can we do better? What else can we add on to this to do to do better than we're doing? And it just becomes overwhelming. So most doctors that I talk to don't even know about metformin. They don't know the degree of research out there um, that shows that it, you know, could be this wonderful adjunctive therapy. So that, that's what I encounter is it's just, there's, there's, uh, there's almost two, you could have two specialties. You could have an adjunctive specialty and just a standard of care specialty almost out there. And there are, when you look, some of the more innovative universities like UCLA, if you go to their website, on glioblastoma, on brain cancers, they'll show you what they're doing in addition to standard of care off-label. And they're one of the few places that actually um, show their overall survival statistics. And for glioblastoma, almost everywhere, the, the overall survival is the same. It's about 14.6 months. And at UCLA, they, they're doing much better than that. They're, they're I think, I want to say 600 and some days, 630 days. So they're beating the um, national average and then you and then you scroll down and you'll see how and they do tons of off label prescribing and you know it's all evidence based but it's it's um they're going pretty far out there off label in, in an attempt to try to you know 
help somebody with a terminal disease and they use metformin, they use ketogenic diets, they use, they use anything that they, that they can. And, and a lot of doctors in more conservative places won't do that. They won't stray from the standard of care. Now that doesn't help when somebody's got a terminal illness, right? It doesn't, you're locked in that mindset. It's, it's not a good place to be when there's something that is safe that you could potentially change the outcome. Why wouldn't you do that? So there's kind of a disconnect, I think, between what is, you know, what's a terminal illness and, and how far we should, what we should do for these patients. That we should be willing to take some chances and risk. You know, I'll tell you, I, I had lunch with, with a woman who, who actually, um, I'm going to be doing extra podcasts with patients. And this woman was at, um, she was in one of the immunotherapy trials uh, uh, at Penn and she survived and she was down to 80 pounds. She was gone and she made a very interesting comment. She said, you know, I, I had this mindset that uh, I was supposed to be sick and die. And I was like, I'm here and I'm in perfect health and I'm hmm. trying to figure out. And she wasn't talking about work-wise, but, or, you know, and she has children and but she was just, she said, I'm trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life because she didn't, you know, she, it, and, and it was a mental energy thing uh, and, and, and philosophical hmm. thing um, because she was supposed to be sick and die and she's not. And then I said, well, and I said, well, that's amazing. How, how did the other people do in the trial? <laughs> and, you know, and ev almost everyone else died. Um, and, and it amazes me that, you know, when, when we know that the placebo effect alone is so powerful, um, what the body's capable of, if you unleash it, um, to, to find its own state of health. Um, and, and that the, your approach with care oncology, uh, by opening up respiration and, and trying to, um, kind of beat down and weaken the uh, invaders while at the same time, you know, giving the, the host uh, or the home team, so to speak, a, um, a chance to get stronger or, or at least stay constant uh, yeah. long enough to overwhelm. Uh, it just, it just amazes me because they'll, they'll put you through the nastiest drugs in, in special trials, but they won't change your diet. And that's, that's been a hard part for me having lost my dad to cancer and several relatives and other friends. Um, so, you know, on that note, um, I, I am appreciative, uh, of your taking the time. I'm, I'm probably yeah. pinging you offline for a few more links, uh, to, uh, good interviews or other things that you think are great that I'll add to the show notes. Um, because you, you have, of, of all people I know in this area, I don't think there's anyone, uh, better versed and, and better connected. And I think a lot of people, find you to let, to let you know, uh, what they're finding in their work. So, um, to those listening, I would, I would say, uh, you, you need to follow Travis and I will oh, make absolutely. sure everyone, My pleasure. Thanks, David. uh, has that information at their fingertips that they can do so. And so thank you for coming today.